This is the Chats with James podcast. Another episode is coming from the archives, originally recorded in May 2022 with Manish Gorogaukar as the guest. James and Manish touch on many topics, including internationalization of languages, zero-copy deserialization in Rust, speedrunning video games, and vaccinate CA. For more episodes, show notes, and the transcript, visit jamesmunns.com slash podcast. Well, do you want to give yourself a quick introduction? Uh, yeah. So, hi, I'm Manish. I've been doing Rust stuff for ages now. I'm part of the DevTools team, used to be on the core team. These days, most of my Rust work is on ICU4X, which is a Unicode project for making an internationalization library in Rust that's modular and fast and, well, in Rust. So I've known you mostly through the Rust project. Like I feel like I've interacted with you online a couple times, and then I know at the Rust All Hands, we've chatted a couple times, probably played Mario Kart once or twice. Yeah, probably. But yeah, I know following you on Twitter is always an experience because I know you're on the Unicode bodies and things like that, which means you have... You are the abyss gazer for things like Moji Bake and things like that. Like whenever when someone's like, why isn't this encoding right? Or why did this ridiculous edge case happen? Or even just for spoken human languages, people start talking about like weird mashup of puns or roots of words. I feel like you're always at the root of that conversation or get roped into that conversation fairly quickly. Pretty much, yeah. I'm, I'm the abyss gazer for multiple abysses, I guess. I've always been interested in uh, human languages, and that got me into Unicode, that got me into many other things. And I guess it's a similar kind of interest that got me into programming languages as well. I spent a lot of time doing Unicode stuff. I have a lot of interests in human languages in general, though most of that doesn't overlap with my primary work in Unicode. So I know you were at Mozilla for a number of years. Was you working on Unicode a result of working at Mozilla, or did those things happen completely independently, or...? Uh, kind of both. So as someone interested in languages and especially writing systems, at some point I got roped into the Unicode script ad hoc, where um, they work on encoding new writing systems or new characters in existing writing systems. So basically, the part of Unicode that's not emoji and not other weird stuff. It's for the actual text. Mm. And that was just an interesting thing for me to attend every now and then and help out in, uh, and I enjoyed that. That's kind of how I got into Unicode. But my primary stuff right now is on ICU4X, which was started as a collaboration between Mozilla and Google. And when it started, I was at Mozilla. I was not working on internationalization at Mozilla. I was working on Servo. But the person who was working on this knew me well. And also, I helped him with a lot of Rust stuff. Mm -hmm. And also, he knew that I had a decent amount of internationalization background. So I got kind of roped in when this started. And it was just like this little side project I had of helping out IC4X. And then later, when Servo shut down, uh, the folks at Google were kind of like, hey, you want to work on ICU4X full-time? And I was like, yeah, sure. This is something that I cared about enough that I actually spent extra time on mm. at my previous job. So I don't mind working on this. So yeah. So it's kind of both. So I know internationalization covers a really broad set of concepts and things that are needed. What aspects of internationalization does ICU4X specifically aim to help with or what kind of problems does it solve? I kind of want to say all of it. Okay. But that's also kind of broad depending on what you mean by internationalization. Basically, ICU4X doesn't do translations or anything. It doesn't do things like providing you a framework to translate things. What it does do is kind of all of the hard algorithmics or data-driven bits of internationalization. So uh, how do people format dates? oh, well, it turns out that even in the U.S., you have 50 ways of formatting dates, whether you want to use numbers or words or short words or whatever. And now you need to do that for everyone. How do different languages have plurals? How do people format numbers? Because some people use periods and commas and vice versa, and then some people put the commas in different places. So it's a lot of stuff like that, segmenting words, whatever. There's already a library, really two libraries called ICU, which is Internationalization Components for Unicode. And they've been around for at least a decade, probably two. They're kind of old. They're in C and Java, and they're maintained by Unicode as well. They're kind of what 
everyone uses to do all of this, and they're fine. The main problem is that they're not modular and they don't give you much control over the data. So you're kind of stuck pulling in this giant dependency and it takes up a lot of space and you can't do a lot of dynamic stuff that people would want to with data loading and with other stuff. Also, the end result of this is many platforms have like multiple copies of it in the end just because you can't really slice it up nicely. Android has at least two, and I think it's more than two. I, I mean, I, Chrome <laughs> has its own. Android has at least one and one more. There, there's a bunch. Everyone has this problem. Firefox has this problem. Android has this problem. And because it's so large, you can't even like think about targeting an embedded platform because this giant Java or C++ library is just not going to fit. IC4X was kind of with the goal of, we want a library that's modular, so you only pull in what you need. If you only need to format dates, you're not going to pull in the formatting for currencies or plurals or whatever. And much more control over the data loading, so you don't have to bake in the data from the beginning. It doesn't have to mean like, oh, well, because we can only have our app be 50 megabytes, we're only going to su support these five languages because we can't support more without loading up data. And we want to give you control over data loading, so you can kind of load it off the network or whatever, or kind of design your own way of loading data, cache it, whatever trade-offs you have about data, we can support it because we kind of let you handle that part. That just makes it applicable to so many more things and so much more flexible. So that's kind of the goal. And also it's in Rust, so modern programming language, um, safe, but still fast. It's fast, but still has a small footprint. Yeah. So that's kind of like our goal. I've spent most of my career on tiny embedded devices, and for a lot of them, they either tend to be headless, so they're mostly sending raw data and things like that. So user presenting messages are not... I haven't worked on a lot of systems with a user interface, I should say. Yeah. So this has been rare in my career, but I've definitely worked with some folks who have either worked in the video game industry or web and front-end industry where internationalization and localization was a huge pipeline project where from the tools that you use for doing the translations to keeping track of those translations in the application and things like that. I know there's this huge amount of, I don't want to say unseen effort, but it's something that when a lot of people are thinking about software and development, that's not the part that they're thinking about unless they've worked on a team that's worked like that. And, yeah. and to go back to what you said about size, the few projects that I have worked on that have had an LCD or something like that, we've typically had to recompile the entire firmware for all the different languages because like you said, there's only so much room for non-volatile storage on those devices. So I definitely remember having macros in there and you'd have to build with different, you know, environment variables or compiler flags in there and rerun 16 build jobs and then update the firmware specifically for devices that are going to that region, which might make sense for a device that never gets updates, but definitely as things become more connected and expect to have updates and either gain functionality or details change and things like that, that becomes less and less optional, even for the really tiny stuff. Yeah. Tiny stuff, most embedded devices probably have fewer internationalization needs than like Twitter or Firefox because, you know, there's there's only so much UI you can have. But even just thinking about like, for example, a smartwatch, or this isn't actually a smartwatch, this mm. is a GPS watch, which is even a better example because this, I don't think this chip on this is like a proper chip with the full OS and everything. This is probably an embedded device. It does a lot, but also it's got to have a battery life of like a, at least a week or so when I'm not in exercise mode. And it's got to show stuff. And this one isn't internationalized, but if it were to be internationalized, you'd want to fit all of that on this tiny chip. Most of the actual like smartwatches, like the actually smart smartwatches where you can install apps and stuff, those run Android or iOS or something, and they have a full-fledged ARM chip. But again, for battery life reasons, you're not going to have that ARM chip running most of the time. You're going to have it running like only when I'm pressing stuff on it. And otherwise, you've got this like tiny little embedded device, embedded chip that's usually just kind of chilling there and showing numbers on the screen. Yeah, the race to sleep is pretty much everything in battery-powered devices is how little can I do and how quickly can I go back to sleeping and look like I'm doing something, yeah. but really using microamps of power because there's no other way I'm going to make it through the week. Yeah, but they still have plenty UI, and nothing I've ever used of this kind is internationalized, but there's still enough to internationalize. Not enough as Twitter or Firefox, like I said, but still quite a bit. Yeah, definitely. So this is something that not necessarily is what's holding 
you know, I have this template, my welcome message, and I don't have the 25 different languages there, but this is something that's a toolkit almost for making that where you have the details of the numbers or like you said, even just calendar dates of making it not look strange to people who aren't in the region where the developers are basically. Cause I think we've seen that on, you know, us developed devices or devices that are from a more international audience. And you look at it and you go, I know what it means, but just every time I look at it, it looks weird. Like I know living in Germany, just looking at currency and things like that and seeing the period and the comma switched for numbers and will throw you off the first couple times you see it. Cause you go, wait, is that, why does that a thousand dollars and why are there three decimal places on that? Oh no, it's a million euros. Okay. We're talking about yeah. something completely different here or a hundred thousand euros yep. instead. So I know that you're using postcard as one of your formats there. And I know that you and I have had some particularly interesting battles with zero copy things. So for folks who aren't, super familiar with zero copy. The idea is that sometimes these messages you receive either from storage or off a network or something like that make up a pretty huge amount of the data that you receive. I mean, if you think about JSON, which is probably a bad example, which we'll come around to later, but uh, I mean, that's a bunch of keys that are strings usually and a bunch of values that are either strings or objects that are then consisting of strings most of the way down. And that tends to be a pretty big amount of the data that comes in. And if you are streaming hundreds of megabytes of this data per second, if you have a cloud service or something like that, if you had to sit down and copy every one of those into a Rust string or something like that, it's not a lot. Like clone is not that expensive an operation, but anything done millions or billions of times adds up. And zero copy is sort of an interesting way of saying, well, don't duplicate it. Just hold on to the original packet. And whenever you have a a string slice or whatever the equivalent is in your language, you just say, go look at the original payload and it's there. And in the past, this has always been done for efficiency reasons. But in a lot of other languages, it tends to be kind of a huge threat vector to say, nonetheless, because if you accidentally keep pointing back to that message buffer and then get rid of the original message, but you're still holding on to some reference of that, you're in trouble. And this ends up being either like a use after free or buffer corruption kind of thing. And Rust has been particularly interesting because lifetimes are more or less exactly what that's for is the ability to safely say, do I still have that packet? Is that packet still good? And is it still around? And can I reasonably borrow from it? I know when I was making my the first iteration of my little computer and my little OS, I was like, I want to copy none of the times. I want a DMA memory directly into a buffer and then I want to borrow that and process the entire packet stack and then send it out with only one copy basically from the input DMA buffer to the output DMA buffer so I could get end-to-end routing and I drove myself crazy because (laughs) you can do that and Rust will not let you make a mistake but everything will work and then you go oh let me just move this message over oh nope doesn't uh, you're not holding onto that buffer for long enough anymore or you have to copy it and then you have this one path where you have to copy things and it ends up being really painful and and Saturday does let you do zero copy things out of the box but I think both you and I have run into cases where we've wanted a little bit more than what comes available out of the box or we're trying to do something a little bit more clever and I know you've ended up writing a library called yoke which is for exactly that kind of problem yeah. In the world of zero copy, I've actually, at this point, designed three libraries um, that do various things in this space. And they're all kind of, there are limitations in this space that I want to get around. They're not necessarily all crates that solve a problem that can't be solved another way, but they all, like, for our specific set of constraints, they work well. To touch on Yoke a bit, the name Yoke comes from the fact that in zero-copy deserialization, mostly when people talk about strings and byte slices, they'll use the cow type because, as you mentioned earlier, you can't zero-copy deserialize formats like JSON because they have escapes. So a string in JSON might not actually be the same exact representation as it is in memory because it'll have some backslashes in some places that you don't want. So if you're deserializing that, you can't always take a reference. You might need to create an own type. So in the zero copy world, it's basically good practice to always use copy and write types everywhere so that your type can be deserialized from self-describing and from binary formats. The idea of Yoke is basically that it 
does it does what I call lifetime erasure, which is kind of a throwback to type erasure from DIN. And the idea is it can turn a compile time lifetime into a runtime one. When you mentioned earlier that when you're doing zero copy deserialization in many languages, it's just a massive threat vector. In Rust, it no longer is, but it is a massive lifetime headache because suddenly the data you deserialize from, the compiler will keep track of it for you, but you still need to handle it and like keep it around. And you've got to do that all at compile time. And you can't always do that. Sometimes you want some kind of caching strategy. Lifetimes don't understand caching. Lifetimes just want to be statically known to always work. And the idea of yoke is basically you can construct some borrowed data out of a data source, which I call a cart. And you can kind of yoke that data to that cart, and you get this yoke type, which contains both the data and the backing source. And it doesn't have any lifetimes that are externally necessary. It, it's got a tick static lifetime that you can see, but basically this means that from the point of view of the outside, this is just a normal type. You can kind of bop around and move and you can hold on to it for as long as you want. You can destroy it immediately and it's got a runtime kind of lifetime. And it's a fully owned type, basically. The way you access the data is this .get method, which gives you the internal object with a much shorter lifetime. So it's still safe. So it's kind of gatekeeping your type at runtime without incurring any runtime checks. .get is just a free kind of pointer. It's, it's giving you the lifetimes at runtime. And so you can put something like an RC as the cart. And now you suddenly have dynamic lifetimes. Uh, you have the benefits that RC gets you when it comes to data management, but you still have zero copy deserialization. So you don't ever have to do those allocations when deserializing. You just use yoke and things are fixed. I will caveat that it uses the 4-tick-a syntax a whole bunch, which is basically it is trying to use higher kinded types before higher kinded types are ready. <laughs> is it something that will be better with GATs when GATs come down? Or is this like really all yes. the way in the higher kinded type? It, it will be better with GATs when GATs are down. But also, mostly any compiler bugs we hit are compiler bugs that are probably also present with GATs. So it's mm -hmm. not like a huge difference. We are just using the stable thing for now. And when GATs are like fully baked, we will do a breaking change and release a better version. It uses like stable gats. And there are plenty of bugs. And shout out to Eddie B and Jack H who have fixed a lot of them. Yeah. Um I, I keep showing up with like, oh hey, here's an ICE. And then my example code says like yokeable in 20 places because um I have joked that we should just like check yoke into tree as a as a test case. <laughs> yeah. We 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 hit a bunch of ICs. What was the threat I saw you make against Ollie? The the longer something isn't const, the more transmutes I will make. Oh, so that is not Galaxy Brain Zero Copy Crate One or Galaxy Brain Zero Copy Crate Two. It's Galaxy Brain Zero Copy Crate Three. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh, so there's something that superseded Yoke now. Is is that Galaxy Brain Crate Two or Three? No, no, no. Okay. No, these are all things that kind of work together. And a bit of background on all of these, like every last crate here, mm. I was kind of like, let's just eat the performance cost or the like memory cost and like see what happens. But then like, firstly, folks had measured it or already kind of had experience from ICU what the costs would be. And also folks were kind of like, let's get the last bit of performance out of this. So in every case, I was like, okay, so there's the simple solution that most Rust stations would do, and it's got a cost. <laughs> and I've got this idea... I really don't think we should do it because it's kind of weird and a bunch of work. And everyone's like, yeah, you should just do it. And so I have spent a lot of my time just doing these things. I've I've been doing feature work as well, but a lot of my time has been spent uh, building like weird Rust crates, which I enjoy. Like that is actually very fun for me. It's a lot of unsafe code. When someone pays you to shave a yak, you shave a yak, I guess. Yeah, when someone pays you to shave a yak, you do shave a yak. Exactly. Yeah, you can even like yoke it to a cart, like a pack yak. Mm. So, so the second crate is this thing called ZeroVec, which essentially Serti only lets you do zero copy with byte buffers and string buffers uh, and strings. So, so byte slices and strings because everything else has constraints. For zero copy deserialization, you need to guarantee that the in-memory representation is the same everywhere, and you can only do that for those two types 
The only two unsized types that you can do that for are those two types. And for types that are sized, you, you just copy them typically. You're not going to actually try to do a zero copy deserialization because those just get copied on the stack. You only want to do zero copy deserialization when you've got something that's like a string that's 100 characters long or a byte slice that's 100 bytes long. And that's all fine, but we want to do more. We want to actually have zero copies completely, or well, we want to have zero buffer copies, which means we need zero copy collections. And that's kind of what ZeroVec gives you. ZeroVec basically gives you versions of VEC and MAP that can hold most types. You might need to auto-derive a trait on them, but they can hold like all the integer types. They can hold an enum or a struct that contains the integer types. They can hold like a slice of strings, or so you can do. You can do things like vec of vec of string, or vec of vec of vec of vec of whatever, in zero copy, and also they are internally copy on write. So because in the zero copy world, like I said, you almost always want copy on write, so they just do that for you, and yeah, they internally kind of work by defining a wire format for everything and storing everything in memory in that way and doing that conversion at runtime instead. So there's a bit of a runtime cost on reads and a larger runtime costs on writes. But the idea is, at least in our case, we're never going to be writing to this data in user code. We produce data, and then the users get it. So it doesn't matter if producing data is a bit slow. So yeah, that, that's the second one. And it basically just gives you this entire world of types that you can use to do zero copy. And we've been using that, and it's been working pretty well. And there's also a map type in there, and the map type kind of, it's basically... Uh, like a linear map? Binary search map. Yeah, oh, okay. Binary search, okay. Yeah, no, no, nothing fancy. And worth mentioning that there's already a crate that does a lot of this called Archive, which was talked about a while ago, and it got, it's got pretty popular, and it's, and it's quite good. Uh, we didn't want to use Archive because it kind of mandates everything about the format. We wanted to use Surdy with its pluggable formats. So... And, and Archive kind of needs you to be in that universe. But Archive mm. is also very, very good. And everything that ZeroVec does, Archive does better. Nice. Yeah, I mostly, I've not really met the Archive folks, but I ran into them because when they were building Archive, they actually went out and built one of the most comprehensive benchmark suites for different serialization formats where they, they have a lot of the Saturday formats. So my yes. format postcard got pulled in there and... Archive was in there, and then there were some non-Saturday ones, like more protobuf style ones as well. And it was interesting to see that. And they even included like Abomination, which is one of my favorite crates, which is just basically <laughs> like, well, you mem copy to a buffer and hope you never send it to another computer that has a different representation. But it was written by a, a guy who was working on high performance computing and things like that, where they knew that every node in their cluster was using that exact same CPU. So for them, why pay portability costs when you know that portability is not a thing? And they gave it the name Abomination intentionally spelled wrong. <laughs> so, I mean, you know sort of the danger that you're getting into. But it was interesting going back and forth on that and, and seeing the different trade-offs because Serda has been tremendously popular in that it it covers like 95% of the serialization and deserialization use case landscape. And because of that, it's gotten huge and you want to stay in that ecosystem because everything works with that. Almost any crate that you yeah. have that has data types will just have some sort of Serde pluggable format. Or like you said, the, the model is implemented, which means you can plug it into Postcard or JSON or Toml or whatever you'd like. But there are a couple of these edge cases where there's just either the format it was impossible to do that when the format was first stabilized. So these kind of things are not possible without breaking backwards compatibility, or they're just outside of the design, like the primary design space of these things like that, where, yeah, zero cost to serialization is one of those things that I've run into where I've had a lot of these copy on write problems, but I'll go one further. And usually I am working on a no standard system, which means that I don't have easy access to do that copy when a write is necessary because there's no allocator, which means you really don't have much to work with. So my first version of that was doing totally deserialized, but you just couldn't touch anything. and You had to be really careful about what you touched. The second one, I ended up making my own sort of like user space reference counting allocator where you just would have slabs. So you would just say, okay, I know all of my messages are going to be less than 512 bytes on the wire. 
So I have a little mini allocator that can hand out 512 byte pages. And didn't matter if you got a 10 byte message or a 499 byte message, you always got the big buffer, but it was reference counted. So you knew as long as someone was holding on to some piece of that slab, that memory would stay intact, which was exactly what I ended up needing. But even doing that, it was difficult because I've forgotten, but I know you and I had a lot of conversations because you were working on Yoke around the same time I was working on Byte Slab, and I was trying to figure out how to make Saturday do the thing that I wanted. And there just really wasn't like the, the there's a really deep set of APIs that you have accessible as either a format implementer or as a data model implementer, someone who's serializing the data types. But I realized what I really needed needed to be on both sides of that. And in Rust traits, there's not really a great way to enforce that you have someone on both sides of that. So what I my hack ended up being you deserialize to borrowed types, and then I would come in afterwards, look at all the references, look at the pointers, and then try and reassociate them with the original buffer, which means I'm scanning through all the references, and I think I called it yeah. uh, rerouting or something like that, where it's just like, is this a reference? Is this a reference to the slab that we have? Okay, cool, where I'm literally just doing pointer math to see if it's in between the memory range of that buffer and made me very nervous, although Gankra eventually did calm my fears on whether doing that pointer math because in my mind doing math on pointers is always undefined behavior like if you're comparing pointers from different allocations it's always undefined behavior and i was worried if you're comparing a pointer of a reference that's not from that buffer with one that is from that buffer then you have problems but she pointed out i think the most succinct thing was there's some limitation there where it's basically like Yes, I think that's theoretically allowed to be undefined behavior, but literally no compiler defines that as undefined behavior because it would break literally everything. And there's basically a switch yes. that no one turns on LLVM for specifically that optimization and it breaks everything. <laughs> so yep. I was a little worried about it, but it ended up being okay. But I know you and I have sort of felt around the edges of what is possible with Saturday, where on some hands it's ridiculously powerful but then there's always that one five percent of things that you want to do where it's just like there's just no way to express that unfortunately yeah and like zero vec is kind of an attempt to like add another percent to that or subtract another percent from the five percent but yeah exactly it, it does a lot but it also it has limitations and we have been trying to work around a bunch of those overall doing pretty well. It's a great crate and it does almost everything we need and the things we don't, it's good enough that we've been able to design these crates that extend it. Also, Yoke is not even working around a SERTI limitation. It's working around a problem that any zero copy serialization crate in Rust will have unless it decides to manage the data for you, which uh, I think some might. Yoke is something that you can use with archive as well or with anything else. Oh, and the third one is the most galaxy brain yet, because it is, it's the one where we go, what if you never had to do any deserialization? What if it was zero deserialization, deserialization? Like, forget zero copy. It's like negative copy. There's no deserialization cost. The background of this was, in some cases, you actually do have trusted data. And we again, we want to support data loading patterns and whatever. Sometimes your data is baked into your binary. You already trust it. And what you could do is like include bytes and then deserialize, but you're paying that cost at some point. And if you're a browser like Firefox, Firefox is, as mentioned before, Mozilla is working on IC4X uh, quite heavily. So if you're a browser like Firefox, you care about process cold start times very, very much especially now that browsers are many processes. So you don't want to pay that cost at the beginning. Um, and you also really just don't want to pay that cost as much as possible. So even if it's zero copy, zero copy deserialization is pretty fast, but it's still, especially if you're doing a lot of data at once, it's still somewhat slow. So the idea, the last crate was kind of like, what if we could solve this problem? What if we could we could support a way to kind of bake data into the binary without paying serialization costs. And the answer in that space is const. And the, the easy doesn't actually work answer is what if all our serialization framework was const? 
it doesn't actually work because Rust doesn't have support for all the things that need to be done such that something as complicated as 30 can be maybe const. It does have designs for all of this, though. Oh, really? So I think, yeah, the Rust const infrastructure will actually kind of live in a space that's kind of perpendicular to traits so that... A trait doesn't have to be inherently const. You can kind of parameterize yourself on a trait that you say that this is the const version of this trait. So you kind of have traits, normal traits, and then you can, for any normal trait, you can say this trait, but make it const. And that's a different bound. So I think it will be theoretically possible with the designs people have, but that's like a couple years away. So we can't rely on that. So instead, the thing we're doing and this is where some galaxy brain stuff happens, and this is also where I threaten Ollie with writing more memtransmutes. Instead, what we're doing is we're still using const uh, to create one static, but we are serializing to Rust code. <laughs> so there's this crate called crabbake. Go on. This one is not actually published yet, or well, it's on it's on crates.io as a placeholder, and it, the first version of it should be published this week or so. But it's still much more experimental, and we're still kind of playing around with it. But folks can try it out. Crabbake gives you a custom derive that basically it gives you a custom derive that gives you a function on the type that generates a token stream that can const construct a value of that type. Oh, okay. So now you can use that in a proc macro or build script or or just in a tool before run before everything and generate an absolutely massive Rust file for all of your data. So you serialize a proc macro basically, yes. and then the proc macro executes the serialized proc macro to create the values? Yeah, you serialize well, you, you serialize to Rust code. Okay. It's just normal Rust code. And then whenever you want, <laughs> you well, it's it's it it can be weird because it's trying to be const. So um yeah, yeah. You, you serialize to Rust code. So basically, the bakeable or crab bake trait gives you a dot bake function on any value, and that'll output a token stream, which in this case, it's just normal Rust code. It's just a constructor that calls constructs all the children and whatever. You just stick that in your Rust file. So it, so it actually serializes to a token stream, you said? To a sto- token stream. So to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. ICU4X has a ton of data that we kind of test with. Uh, We have like a whole bunch of locales and a whole bunch of different things. There's a pull request open right now, which is making everything work with this. It's like multiple megabytes of Rust code, like tens or something of megabytes of Rust code, I think. I believe it actually takes a while for Rust format to format. Wow. I don't think I've ever seen Rust format hiccup before. Yeah, I... I, 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 I forgot the numbers. Yeah, the biggest crate that I've seen is in embedded, we tend to do code generation for register definitions and things like that. So, you know, and you've got these registers that configure your serial port or your memory interface or whatever. Um, we'll generate a bunch of code for that that gives you sort of safe APIs for that. But these microcontrollers have a big range of how complex they are. And for some of the really, like really, really high-end microcontrollers. So getting out of the realm of what a microcontroller actually is anymore, I'm thinking of ones that are like the IMXRT family from NXP, which is a one gigahertz microcontroller with a ridiculous amount of RAM. I think it generated a million lines of Rust source, which probably isn't 10 megabytes even. And I think we already had to break that up using a tool called Form because the code gen all happens to one file. So you get this librs that is just one single line of 10 million lines worth of code uh, or a 1 million lines worth of code. Then you run it through Rust format, which chunks that into many, you know, a million lines of pretty formatted code. And then you run it through a tool called form, which takes modules and breaks them out into files automatically. And then you run Rust format on that again. But the problem is whenever you do a clean build on that, it takes like, six minutes or something like that just for that one crate to power through that million lines because it's a single code gen unit which means parallelism means nothing to it and yeah it's sort of the oops we have found the logical end of our tools usefulness where like okay on squared is fine up to some point but then at some point it just becomes not okay yeah the github diff stat says 350 thousand lines okay and apparently it 
crashes Rust Analyzer. Nice. So now we need to tell Rust. We, we're figuring. Well, I think we've already figured out how to tell Rust Analyzer. Just just don't look there. <laughs> I, I'm also kind of advocating that we don't check in all of it because if we check it in for one locale, that's kind of enough, and we can generate all of it during testing. But yeah, it's it's a lot. Mm. Actually, this just reminded me of a somewhat unrelated anecdote of when I was working on Servo. There's a test suite that all browsers share called Web Platform Tests, and it's kind of maintained collaboratively by all browsers. Browsers also have their own tests, but this is kind of like most of the Web Compat tests go here, and it's massive. And we used to submodule it, but basically all browsers moved over to checking it into tree and having like a sync tool that tends to work better for stuff like this. And the commit where we did that, it didn't just break github on servo it it took down a github like node or cluster or whatever they've oh, got no. <laughs> we know this because well our merge bot bores stopped working because it could no longer tell if things were mergeable because the github api was just not telling you things were mergeable across the the big merge we'd done and then we kind of emailed github to be like oh hey this happened and also we made this merge so maybe that's why and then they're like yeah there was the whole thing that happened on like a Plus, I don't know exactly what the term was, but apparently it took something down. Not too much, but it was like not just our repo. Yeah, I think the worst we've had with that in like embedded Rust is occasionally we'll code gen a normal microcontroller will be like 100,000 lines of code. But sometimes some of the way that these organizations work is they'll have all of the chip families in one repository just because there's like common tooling and things like that. So when you update the tooling, it will regenerate all of these and then we'll publish all of them and you'll get something like, you know, 150 of these crates checked in at the same time that take about four minutes on a clean build each. And they're also relatively large. And I think this was before there was a, like a dedicated paid yeah. docs team or like a dedicated docs RS team when it was much more of a volunteer project. And you just go, well, we'll send someone an email like we need to publish these. Like, how can we make this not like we're doing this as volunteer work and we realize you're doing this as volunteer work and we don't want to cause problems. But we also want all 150 of our crates on crates. I.O. like what what can we do? here? I think now there's a much better system for priority leveling and things like that, where there's a couple ecosystems that tend to do that a yeah. lot. It's not just the embedded folks anymore, but usually it tends to be generated code projects that are doing like. I'm thinking of like Google or Amazon's yep. uh, API definition generators or things like that that generate JSON or protobuf or gRPC or whatever for all those interfaces. And they tend to be huge. And you'll see just like 200 crates in the queue for a day or two. Yeah, they all get deprioritized, I believe, which is kind of how it's handled. Yeah. Docstarus has like a list of known ecosystems like that. Yeah. It will deprioritize them. It still wants to build them, but it will like try to, you know, not let other crates suffer so it'll, I, I don't know exactly how the prioritization works but yeah it does something like that yeah. which i think people in those ecosystems are kind of fine with because you know they just want their stuff to work and yeah. it's fine if it takes some time yeah we would also get into problems where because it's like one crate we kept blowing the memory limits of the docs rs builder and stuff like that too so then you just had these like backed up failed jobs and things like that and yeah it, it was bad yeah i think we ended up submitting some of those as like stress test examples for the compiler project as well because when you're generating that much code, it's pretty pathological to what a normal yeah. Rust project looks like. But there's also not a great way of breaking. We, we've tried breaking it up a couple times, but it ends up. Yeah, you end up with circular dependencies that are really hard to programmatically generate, if that makes sense. Yeah, it generated code is always kind of like, well, the worst. I mean, also, and you've almost certainly have if you have looked at fuzz code, it is it is written by aliens. So it's it's like the same thing. A lot of compiler bugs are just, you know, hit by code written by aliens, I guess. Oh, oh, you're talking about like the generated like minified cases that get generated by fuzzer. Yes. Okay. Yes, when a fuzzer it's always wild stuff. It's like why why who who would do this? Why why is this break 117 times in a row inside of an if statement? And you're like, well, you're right, I didn't think to yeah. test that, but that sure does crash the compiler. Yeah, and the answer to who would write that is Elden Ring players. Yeah. Okay, I admit I am totally out of the loop. I've been playing like Tetris 99 for the last three years, and I am a I am a terrible gamer. Oh, I'm also out of the loop. One thing that was, it caused even a little bit of a controversy, was apparently they had this wall 
that you had to punch like a hundred times and there was no feedback that like punching was doing anything you know in, the, in a normal game if you kind of attack a wall it'll just do nothing and if it's a special wall you'll hear a little sound and there was no feedback you just had to like stand in one spot and punch a wall a hundred times and then it opened a secret door which later i think it transpired that actually that was a mistake oh no <laughs> it wasn't intentional but because elden ring is so well known for being a hard game everyone was kind of like yeah yeah, that's that's what this game's like. This this is normal. It's like old games would have that in there, like when they would ship the games, and then they would write the manuals after they ship the games, and they're like, "Look out for this. This person will come and uh, it'll end your game." But it was really like a buffer overflow or something like that. So, like they would just write it in like it was some intended behavior, but it wasn't. I've seen people on Twitter talk about like as soon as speedrunners realize that they are basically doing reverse engineering, but like hard mode because you have no tools or anything like that sometimes now you have tool assisted speed running and stuff like that but like figuring out things i can't remember which one of the zelda games it was but one of the zelda games if you exhaust the heap you get like this red moon condition and it kills everything on the map and then respawns things it basically is like oh that's a different one. it's like a forced culling of the heap oh 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 that's oh you're talking about breath of the wild. i think it's breath yes. of the wild yeah and yeah it's funny because they programmed it in the game so it doesn't look weird, but people have looked at it and gone, oh, okay, you just exhausted the heap or fragmented the heap so bad that it needed to basically give up, despawn all the entities and then respawn the ones that needed to be there in like a yeah. clean, nicely compact format or something like that. And it is funny to see all of those speed runs are basically executing arbitrary code or figuring out how to get the allocator into like, a really niche terrible fragmented state just so you can force some behavior yeah there, there's an old zelda speed run where someone just like apparently when you throw a grappling hook something of it gets leaked hmm. and so they were just like leaking grappling hooks into the heap until this barrier would not load and like it was this barrier that would take a lot of time to go around so you kind of you first fill up the heap until the barrier refuses to load and then you can just go straight to the boss fight nice which was nice yeah i've seen a bunch of those where it's when you watch the speed run in the first like eight minutes is they're doing one thing like they're doing backflips or shooting a grappling hook or picking up and throwing bombs and picking up and throwing bombs and it's, it's yeah. all that just to like get the stack pre-tuned or to get the heap pre-tuned to have certain values and it's like and rop sled like and then you just yeah. do ridiculous things from there yeah, this isn't arbitrary code execution, but like if we're talking about speedrunning, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the quadruple parallel universes one. If you've Oh, have you not seen quadruple parallel universes? That rings a bell, but I I have no idea what game that is for. So it's for the Super Mario 64 Watch for Rolling Rocks level and there is this one YouTuber who this is not a speed run in the like speed sense. It's a speed run in the we are playing the game with some arbitrary constraints because, you know, why not? And <laughs> the constraint that they're trying to do is minimize A presses. Yeah. You know, the very useful button in the game. Let's let's just not use that as much as possible. And what the game is about is about beating that level in half an A press. Uh, it explains what it means by half an A press, but the general idea is Sometimes, in some cases, you can go through a lot of the game with just A held down. So if you've already pressed A for a different reason and you don't let go, then you can do a bunch of stuff. But it's one of the most Galaxy Brain speedrun videos I've watched, and it's, it's commentated. And they kind of explain what's going on in a very matter-of-fact way. It, it doesn't sound like they're describing something Galaxy Brain, yeah. but like every five minutes, it just gets worse. They start out with like simple stuff, and then it just gets worse and worse and worse. Uh, and eventually, they get to what is known as quadruple parallel universes. That's the like end state. So you can kind of see how much it's going to take to get there. It's a very good video, and it has, I feel like it has kind of captured minds much wider than the speedrunning community. Someone made this uh, animation of like Mario versus some other Nintendo mm. character where they fight, and then the fight heavily references this video. Quadruple Parallel Universes is just this amazing video, and it's like it's like 20 minutes. It's not I'll that long. I'll go look at it. Especially 
if you caught it after it's been known for a while, people have gone back and a lot of times when they figure out the trigger case or the reproduction case, they'll go in through an emulator and like step through all of the states and figure out exactly why it does that. Or like trying to figure out other ways that you can reproduce it even faster. Or like you said, like maybe throwing the bomb triggers it in a hundred throws, but the hookshot does it in 20. So then now everyone's switched over to the hookshot meta and starting to use that but i have to go look at that one like i've seen some really crazy skyrim yeah. ones and like super mario 64 has got to be the one that i see the most i think that's also one of those games where they shipped it in i can't remember exactly what it was but it was something like they shipped it with some optimizations on but nearly all of the optimizations in the game turned off because they just like they were working up to the last minute to ship it and I'm sure they were running to some like compiler limitation or undefined behavior that they were tripping over or something like that. And like, I want to say something like the engine is at like 01 or 02, but all of the entity logic for all of the characters and stuff like that are at like no optimizations because like someone's told the story afterwards. They're like, it was just hitting some <laughs> compiler bug and we couldn't hunt the compiler bug down. So haha, no optimizations. <laughs> and it turns out it still fit on the system, but I'm sure there's like, a ton of the exploits that take advantage of that either just because like it's less optimized. So it's easier to get it to fill up the stack or the heap or something like that, or just something else terrible (laughs) or more predictable to exploit because it's not optimized in some really weird way. Speedrunning is not something I pay that much attention to, but whenever I do, I always have a good time. (laughs) It's a look at something that's like peripheral to your industry, but not exactly what you do and it doesn't cause you a headache because you're not working in the game industry so it's not like immediately nausea inducing yeah (laughs) yeah though there are like also some really good relationships with speedrunners in the game industry like Mm. celeste was i think it was designed by someone who is a speedrunner but it was designed with speedrunning in mind as well Mm. and like there, there are a whole bunch of little things that are in the game that kind of help you notice that. Recently, someone someone made a version of Celeste with... It was the wildest thing I saw, and someone was speedrunning this on Twitch. And Celeste is a very hard game, and someone made a version of Celeste where instead you're playing Mario, and you have Mario's moveset, mostly. Okay. So you are playing a game that is very hard with not even the right move set <laughs> and there's the whole bunch of like it's not just that there's like a lot of things are changed to make it actually playable um and i was watching a speed run of that and i was just kind of like people are amazing i i love when you get the crossover of games and developers especially games like that that either have like a really yeah specific workflow or something like that like Eve, the online like space. I know what you're talking about. Faring game. I know what you're about to get to. Yeah, introduced an integration with Excel. Go for it. So like because people were always already like tracking the meta of because like the whole thing is like shipping and getting arbitrage of like buy it here for this cost and sell it over there. They're like we just built an integration, and I know you were playing. Oh, what is it called? The uh, Factorio with a bunch of Rust folks and someone's like okay how do we get like Prometheus logging into our instance so that we can use like all these like logging and tracing and visibility tools so we can watch the amount of science we are doing per second or the number of trains we have going or and yeah. watching those come together where people are like haha I have the tool I have observability tools for this like I know how to automate this and that becomes like a weird metagame I'm pretty sure that was Eliza, and I'm also pretty sure that's like the second or third Factorio game I've played with Eliza over the years, where at some point, Grafana or Prometheus gets brought up. And I'll point out, there is a mod for Factorio that lets you do this. (laughs) This is already possible. I've never used it. I've never played a game with it, but it has been fun to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That overlap is also always fun. The online thing made me chuckle a lot. Yeah. I'm sure they did it mostly for a laugh, but like I saw a huge amount of press just on that where it's like Eve Heart Excel kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I suspect it's like actually really useful and Google Sheets can do it can do network requests. So you actually can do a lot of weird stuff in Google Sheets if you really want to. It's got this like instead of like the visual basic environment you'd have on your desktop. I know my wife does a bunch of data analysis and things like that. And, and there's a couple of 
like Google Sheets JavaScripts platform because they basically have like a little sandbox yep. JavaScript environment you can use for what you would use like not just a VLOOKUP, but the more ex- yeah. like advanced scripting type stuff. If you wanted to pull in currency definitions, I'm sure you can go deep with it if you really want to. So this year, for the first time, I participated in an MIT mystery hunt team. And for those who are unfamiliar, it's kind of like this treasure hunt that usually occurs on MIT grounds every year. This year it was remote, but it occurs on Martin Luther King weekend. And basically, you solve a bunch of puzzles, and the answers to the puzzles feed into more puzzles, and it's just like, you know, puzzles. I was I was participating in a chill team. I'd, a friend had introduced me to it. And she was like, you're, you're going to enjoy this. And initially, I was doing a bunch of like language-related stuff because there were some things that I knew that like many of the people on the team didn't. So I was like focusing on those. But a thing that I noticed was, firstly, my team did everything in sheets, like everything. And the sheets were magic. You could add rows to a sheet, and it would every every time we unlocked a new puzzle, you could add a row to a sheet. And it would add like a Slack channel and create all of the new sheets that you need because everything was done in sheets. And also, that was not unique to my team. And I know this, not just because people told me, but because the puzzle website had a like, for every puzzle, there was a copy to Google Sheets button or copy to Excel button Mm. that would kind of copy it in a format that could be pasted into sheets without any problems. So like if there's a bunch of stuff on it, it might be a puzzle that actually, even if it's a puzzle that really doesn't need sheets, it still had one, but it was just, you know, everything happened there. And it was, especially since people were solving puzzles remotely, that actually worked out really well and had a good time. Folks had like some serious Google Sheets chops. It was (laughs) like, there were times, especially since I was in Pacific there were times when it was late at night and I was one of the few people playing and I got to like use or only person who was free who was able to do the thing. So like I was also able to do a bunch of complicated Google Sheet stuff, but like some things people designed were just amazing. I always love when uh, people do weird stuff in Excel and Sheets. Yeah, I feel like the downside to that is usually at least as a software developer, is those things <laughs> scale up to some point and then the maintainability drops off a cliff because you were... Like it makes it very easy to do certain things, but not maintain them. But for something where it's like a three day weekend where you're like, I need observability now and I need something that's basically automatable and usable as a front end to my entire team. It's got to be probably one of the most flexible things for that without building your own crazy toolkit for it out of the, you know, from scratch. That gives me flashbacks to Vaccinate CA. Mm. Vaccinate CA was a speedrun startup. Yeah, I, I remember yeah. following that along and seeing especially like what's his name, Patrick, Patio11, talking a lot about that. And do you want to give a like a brief history of what that was and how you got involved? Because I saw you were involved with it, but I, I never really heard the story behind it. Yeah, so Vaccinate CA was basically the idea that finding vaccines is hard. This was in uh, February 2021. You got to call up like 10 places to find out if any of them, forget if they have stock or not, if they're even doing vaccines. At the time in California, uh, mostly mostly people above 65 were eligible. So it was also like, this is quite a bit of a burden. And we also knew that this is going to just get worse as more people get eligible. I think the government did have plans, but they were not moving along. So basically, and it started with a tweet from Patrick McKenzie, which was kind of like a thing that tech people could do without that much effort is just build a, like, and not just tech people, like volunteers could do without that much effort is just call up all the places that might do vaccines, find out who are doing vaccines and publish this list. Yeah, so I, I got involved because, ironically, they were doing some um, Excel slash Google Sheets stuff and some scraping, and someone was like, hey, Manish, you know a bunch about that. Do you want to get involved? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I got involved in that. We started out, and, and this is where like the speedrun startup comes in, because we, I mean, it was a speedrun startup whose only goal was throwing away all the money. Which is, you know, we're not trying to make money. We got donations at best, and then we spent it on stuff. It was a speed run because we kind of went through like the stages I think startups kind of go through with a bunch of their product and stuff, but in ridiculous time spans. 
And we start out with like an Excel sheet of just a bunch of places folks had kind of copied from various websites and phone numbers. And I did like some Google Maps API calls to populate them with phone numbers and everything else. And folks were calling there and just like ticking something in the sheet. And at some point, people who had used Airtable uh, or worked on Airtable got involved and they were like, you know what, this is not going to scale. Let's go to Airtable. So we went to Airtable and we set up kind of a bunch of tables. And that was great because it was very easy to kind of filter stuff and redirect stuff in Airtable. We also had this little script in Airtable, you can write JS to make like a little UI. And we had this little script someone had written that would kind of just give you a random number in a place and you call it and you just had like a phone tree to kind of click through. And that meant the programmers and like the people, the organizers could kind of direct calls and stuff like that very quickly. This got very useful when we realized on like day six or something that most people don't have vaccines, but Safeways do have vaccines because turns out you know who's good at getting cold stuff around? Grocers. <laughs> Grocers. And if the grocer happens to have a pharmacy, they're also, yeah, they also have vaccines. So then we kind of focused everyone onto Safeways. At this point, we still kind of just had this Airtable embed on the website. So people would open the website and kind of, you could filter it there, but it was still very hacky. And then Valerie Lancy designed a little map that would show you and you could just zoom in and kind of click on the area. So basically we grew from like a small group of people to quite a lot of people, a lot of people calling, new volunteers every day. In in like a week or so, we had in like maybe two weeks, we had coverage of all of the healthcare places in California that we thought would have vaccines. And we were like able to get information from them at a scale of like a couple days on recalling. People were already using us quite a bit. And we kept doing this. And at, at one point, we actually we grew past the Airtable data limit. <laughs> like, bear in mind, we had people who worked at Airtable. We had enough money to pay a problems away. Yeah, we hit fundamental limits in. There's like a fifty thousand row limit in Airtable. Mm -hmm. I know Excel has something similar. Airtable made it a hundred thousand for us. Mm. I think their actual limit is something else, but they were like, "This is a fundamental limit." So we ended up having to rearchitect again to use like SQL. Mm. But this took a while, and at this point, there were actually like full time employees. When I got involved, it was fully volunteer and. I did a whole bunch of the technical scaffolding at the time. So another thing I speed ran then was I speed ran burnout over a oh no over a long weekend. It was actually I think it was good that I did that because it was an interesting experience and I handled it well. Because there was the Martin Luther King long weekend, I was already pretty involved and I was doing a lot of stuff. I was like doing a lot of the technical infrastructure but also doing kind of a lot of the managing of who we call and all of our ontologies because Every county did things differently. A large problem we had was just the ontology of things. How to categorize this information that in a uniform way, how to get all the information that's necessary, and how to surface it to the user. And so that was a lot of work that we were doing. So I was just constantly involved. And because I was behind a lot of the technical stuff, I was like necessary for a bunch of stuff. On Saturday and Sunday, basically, and most of Friday, uh, on Saturday, I go to the hills and do habitat restoration. So I did do that. But aside from eating and sleeping, like vaccinate CA was all I did. And I enjoyed it. And then like late Sunday, I was kind of like, this is not sustainable. I cannot keep doing this. And so I started writing docs, which I'd already been doing, but I was like more docs. And on Monday, I kind of made sure more people were involved, hit off a bunch of things and stayed pretty involved, but was no longer like... Load-bearing. Load-bearing on a lot of things that needed a constant effort. There were more people involved. And also, we kept growing. Yeah, startups are interesting in that, like, from what I've seen, the, the ones that do the best tend to design for the next order of magnitude or two and no further and no near yeah. or anything like that, where, like, you know yes. that if you're starting with Excel, you're like, okay, this is going to get me to N thousand rows or x number of simultaneous users and it'll be fine i don't need to over engineer it until then and then you go to Airtable because you're like okay well i can do my next 
two orders of magnitude of growth here. And then at some point you're like, you know, SQL is unavoidable at this point. Like, why not drop it into MySQL or Postgres or whatever managed service you were using or something like that? And it's interesting to hear that go so quickly because I've I've seen startups die because the market takes off faster than they can respond. And I've also seen startups die because they respond faster than the market takes them up. You know what I mean? Like they're designing multiple orders of magnitude forward when that's not their problem right now. But it's interesting to see like, you don't get that a lot in startups where your market is so excited and like people are like, yeah, cool. I get what you're doing. Yeah, let's do it. Let's help. Like where we're getting vaccines in hands of people. And another a huge part of that startup process is like learning the on the ground information where especially if you have a startup that is not made up of people from that industry or things like that, there's just certain lessons you only learn by being involved. And I, I saw a bunch of reports from that of just learning that, oh, you can ask the pharmacist at this place because they have other friends that are pharmacists and will tell you what all the other nine pharmacies are in that region. And like you said, like no one thought to check a Safeway, yeah. but someone's like, have you tried calling Safeway yet? And I'm sure that was the point where you're just like, oh, this has changed. Like, Oh, we, we already had Safeways on our list. But what we didn't realize was, I mean, we were just calling everyone mm-hmm. on our list. And then we were like calling Kaiser hospitals where we'd have like a one hour wait because everyone was calling them. Half the big places were places everyone was calling. And we were like, let's get that information put on the website so that, you know, instead of people having to call. Yeah, we knew Safeways were there. We just weren't focusing on them. We were just calling everyone. And then we were like, wait, the big hospitals don't have their stuff together yet, but Safeway does. And soon after CVS did. And like, we could see the trends. We had a very good bird's eye view of distribution. Yeah, so we knew about Safeway. We just didn't, it never occurred to us to be like, oh, of course, Safeway is who we should focus on. And I'm sure that changed, like you said, changed every week. Changed every week. Because you were trying to capitalize on the folks who didn't have their stuff together last week, but did have their stuff together this week. But the market or like the people who were looking vaccines hadn't caught up with that. So it was like trying to quench or basically maximize the amount of effectiveness you could have of your callers for what the availability was. Also, to give an idea just of the like speed of the thing, Vaccinate CA lasted like five months. Yeah. Not a long time. And it went through like three or four stages of startup land in that process. <laughs> the Excel thing was like a day and the Excel to Airtable took like three days. And then Airtable was around for like a month or two or maybe three. And then after that, for the rest, it was, yeah. And we were adding a lot more stuff in that time. There was like more than that that kind of went through that ratcheted scaling thing just very quickly. That's very, very cool. Yeah. And I know just like a couple months ago, I saw Patrick posted like, hey, we've actually closed down the Vaccinate CA company because I guess there was a company that got spun up to handle those donations and things like that. And donations. Yeah. It was like, you know. You don't always get to be really successful and close the startup up, but like literally there was nowhere else for this to go. And I'm happy where it ended up, where it's just such a yeah antithesis of how a lot of startup stories go. And it was fun to watch from the outside and to hear people talk about like everything that was learned and the stuff that you might like make sense in retrospect. But until you're there, like you wouldn't have thought to ask that or something like that. Yeah, I I learned a lot in that. And when it closed down, it was a very fun moment. It was a very interesting moment for me. Not fun, but it was interesting because it was like, I was extremely happy that everything, we had gotten to the point where we didn't need to exist anymore. It was also kind of sad that like, oh, all these people I've been working with, I'm not going to get to work with them that much. But it was, it was an interesting moment, like kind of bittersweet. Yeah, it's, it's weird to categorically say it's a success. And it's done and gone. Like, yeah, it's not something that lives on just outside of you. It's just something that that was a successful effort. And like you said, you were so successful, it no longer needed to exist or, you know, the rest of the world caught up with the speed at which you were working. Yeah, I think I saw I think it was a Tumblr post, but someone recently was talking about how in our society, we tend to view success as permanence. And it Mm. doesn't have to be like you ran a a restaurant for like 10 years. That's success, even if it Mm -hmm. closed uh, or whatever. Success doesn't have to be permanent. Yeah. If if you did a thing and you enjoyed it, that's success. If it did good, that's success. Yeah. That's kind of how I think I see Vaccinate CA. It was never intended to last more than like. It's fulfilling a need that you knew was ephemeral, but like you wanted it to be as ephemeral as possible. Like you didn't want the mismatch of of supply and demand to be 
large forever. The goal was always to bring that or constrain that as much as you could. So, yeah, exactly. And yeah, I think it succeeded pretty well in that. Very cool. Well, thanks so much for chatting with me today. Yeah, it was great talking to you. Where can people find you on Twitter and things like that? Uh, well, I'm I'm Manish Earth like everywhere on the internet. <laughs> so yeah, and you can find me on mostly Twitter or GitHub, I guess. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thanks so much for chatting. You're welcome. All right. Bye. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by One Variable UG, a consultancy focused on advising and development services in the areas of systems engineering, embedded systems, and software development in the Rust programming language, based in Berlin, Germany. Check out our website at onevariable.com or send an email to contact at onevariable.com. Audio recording done by James Munns. Edited and produced by Amanda Mirovich. Special thanks to Louis Zong for the music. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.